How many of you have had a conversation that you knew was going to be a game changer? It, the stakes were high, and it was maybe controversial, and the things that you had to discuss were going to change that relationship moving forward. Maybe it, was, maybe it was with a friend. Maybe you said, there's something we have to talk about, and I've got the butterflies in the stomach because this is a big deal. But because of my great love for you, I'm going to have this conversation, and it might change things later. Perhaps as spouses, you've had those conversations where you say, honey, we've got to sit down, we have to talk, we have to have a conversation, and it's a big deal. Maybe you've had those conversations at work with your staff or, you, or a board where you know there's some things we have to put on the table, there's some things we have to address that are going to change things moving forward. Significant. And so you go into those meetings knowing uh, that, that the stakes are high. This morning, we're going to go to uh, the text... In Galatians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 11. And this is where Paul has to go to Jerusalem for a meeting, a super significant meeting. This text, you might say, well, why are we reading a text this morning about a meeting? What relevance does it have today? It has great relevance for you and I because God protected us that day. Because what went on in this meeting was that the, the, the gospel was at stake. And, and Paul went to defend that gospel, which we're, we're about to uh, read in a minute. And, uh, but this was like the original come to Jesus meeting. That's the way to kind of think about this text as we're, as we're working our way through Galatians here. That the nature of the gospel is substitution. But the nature of the false gospel that had started to creep into the church was contribution. The gospel says that Christ did everything. And faith in him alone is sufficient. But the false gospel said, no... We need to contribute something, and Christ's work plus my work makes salvation sufficient. That was the false gospel that started creeping in. And so at the beginning of this letter, we find there's really two ways to run away from God's grace. We can run away from God's grace in rebellion, but we can also run away from God's grace trusting in our rule-keeping. The rebellious heart says, there is no God, I'll be God, and I'll live according to my own law. But the religious rule-keeping heart says... I need to keep the law, I can keep the law, and I will save myself by my rule-keeping and keeping the law. And both of those, the rebellious heart and the, and, and the rule-keeping heart, are, are two different ways of running away from the great grace of Christ. So the repentant heart that comes to this grace and faith through Christ alone gospel says, Oh God, I'm placing all my faith in Jesus who kept the law for me. Would you now renew my heart and reform this heart? so that I would love you and love your law, so that by through that I'm actually loving my neighbor. That's the repentant heart. But in a reciprocal world, Christ's work plus your work together seems to make sense. In a, in a reciprocal world, Jesus making a contribution and you making a contribution, that seems to be more logical. But the, but the gospel is scandalous because Christ's work is sufficient. And so, the, so Paul has to go to this meeting to defend this gospel. And in verse 8, which we went to a couple weeks ago, Paul said, there is no other gospel. So this is a code red meeting that he, that, that he goes to. And Galatia, they're at risk of embracing this false gospel that's really going to cause them to rely on their own obedience as a means of salvation. And so the, doc, the doctrine of justification by faith alone in this uh, text is very clear. It's like a laser. It's, it's that if we believe... Um, that we need to add to Christ's grace, we erase Christ's grace. And Paul was arguing for that. And so God's grace for you and I is apart from our obedience. 
God's grace for you and I is not being uh, kept by our continual obedience. And in the end, God's grace for you and I actually propels all kinds of loving obedience. But we're saved by a Redeemer and not our reform. So this is what's taken place. And Paul says, I got to defend this. And now we're going to go to the text in chapter 1, verse 11. I'm going to read this for you, starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of the people who were my own age, and I was extremely zealous uh, for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, and I remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother." In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was, unknown, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. <clears throat> they were only hearing it, and they said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I had not been running in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek, yet because of the false brothers who were secretly brought in, who, who slipped in to spy in on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us back into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me, for mine through the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go into the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. Now, this is a big meeting. The stakes are very high. The gospel is at stake here. And Paul is defending that salvation is a result of God's grace, not our rule-keeping, which is good news for you and I. Because if it was about Christ's work and your rule-keeping, how much do you need to do? How much did you do this week? Was it enough? What about next week? You see, if it's not, if our salvation isn't resting in Christ alone, Jesus is not the main actor in our salvation any longer. We become the main actors. 
who through our good works each week are somehow keeping our salvation uh, status valid. That was the false gospel. And Paul goes to Jerusalem to say, I got to take this meeting because this is code red. That's interesting. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus and you read Matthew chapter one, where there's all the begats, starting with Abraham, right? There's a name that's conspicuously missing. Who was it that all of the people through, through human history that God worked through that eventually Christ would come? When you look at all those names, there's a name that's missing, and that name is Moses. Because salvation doesn't come through the law. Salvation couldn't come through the law. Moses, the scriptures tell us in John chapter 1, verse 17, brought the law. Jesus brought grace and truth. And he fulfilled the law. Which is good news for you and I, because as we read that text, we say, why are we reading this this morning? It's just kind of complicated. We're reading about a meeting that Paul had. But if Paul didn't take that meeting, every Sunday morning at church would sound something like this. Good morning. Next week, you better try harder. Because this is all hanging in the balance on you. And the life that you're living and the level of your obedience to God is keeping this whole thing intact. If Paul didn't take that meeting. That's why the meeting is, is so code red for us. So here's the sermon today in a sentence. It's this. It's that the gospel is the basis for our unity. It creates diverse community. And it propels generosity. Those are the three things we want to pull out of this meeting that Paul had. So first of all, how is the gospel the basis for our unity? Well, think about it this way. Specific beliefs are the basis and the boundary of any community. If you're going to be a part of any community or any club or rotary or association or network, there's a set of beliefs that are the basis for that community and they're the boundary. So, for example, we've got the here in town, the Howard, uh, the John Howard Society, and they believe fundamentally in uh, caring for and being a part of uh, systems to prevent crime in youth. So if you believe what they believe about the importance of crime prevention programs, you can be a part of that community. It's the basis and the boundary. If your view of juvenile crime is, well, you know what? They just, some people just got to bang their heads against the wall and they got to learn. And then you can't be a part of that community because you don't share the basis and the boundary of that community. We also have in town St. John's Kitchen. As, as a church, we partner with St. John's, right? Carol, who's a part of our congregation here, she volunteers there. And in time, we'll probably have lots of folks who that's their heart and they'll serve there. They feed 300 homeless every day. And we send them finances and we're a, we're a part of what they're doing because they are doing good work in the city. But they believe that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You deserve dignity, nobility, and, and a meal. We don't care about your resume Dignity and nobility and love and grace say, we will feed you. So we're a part of the St. John's community. But if your view of the poor is, I worked hard for my money, you should work hard for your money, I was the one that pulled myself up my bootstraps and got a job and I am who I am today, and clearly you've made a lot of poor life decisions and so why should I feed you? You see, you can't be a part of that community because that's the, the basis and the boundary of that community is their belief. And we could go on and on and on. If you're a business person, you've got values by which your business operates. If somebody comes to your business and says, I'd like to work here, and you say, great, these are the core values of our company. This is why we do business this way. And they say, well, I actually disagree with these. These are my values, and they're contradictory. You're not going to say, welcome to the team. 
So Paul goes to this meeting in Jerusalem to say, there is a basis for the church? There's a basis for the gospel? Christ alone, by his grace, apart from our works, there's a basis? And that's actually the boundary that's establishing our unity. In verse 4, the whole point, in verse 4, the whole point Paul goes to Jerusalem is he's actually going to isolate false teachers. This is very uncomfortable. In a culture of, hey, let's just, let's all just hug, okay? Let's just have a theological mosaic. Let's just have, we'll just, you can teach anything and believe anything and let's just, let's be nice to other Christians because we don't want to isolate people. We don't want to say, hey, I'm not, that's contradictory to the gospel of God's grace. Which is like, let's just all hug. That's unity. No, it isn't. It's actually universalism, but we'll get to that in a minute. So Paul takes this meeting. He goes, I got to go to Jerusalem because um, I got to isolate the false teaching. And then in verse 9, there's this little phrase where it says, and he extended the right hand of fellowship. Don't let that little phrase get lost on you. So Paul goes to this meeting and it's very public. And those who are in charge of the church, the apostles, they shake hands publicly. But they don't shake hands with everybody. This is the, you could read more about this in Acts chapter 15, but this is the, this is the, this is the thing. It would be like, next week Dan McDonald is going to preach here while I'm gone. So he's, he's in the pulpit representing the gospel to you, right? But let's say I was gone for two weeks, and the week after that, a guy named, you know, false teacher Fred comes and preaches. And then the week after that, I come back, and then there's Dan, and there's false teacher Fred, and I listened to their podcasts while I was away, and Dan came and preached the gospel, but false teacher Fred came in, and he said to you guys, you know, it's Jesus plus these things is kind of what's going to save you. And I know Paul talks, you know, your pastor Paul talks about grace all the time, but guys, if you don't get your acts together, you know, God is going to shred your adoption papers, right? If, if, you don't, if you don't obey and operate in this way, you're going to invite cursing back into your life. If you disobey God's law, you're going to be cursed. And he starts erasing the cross because we all know Christ took the curse, right? He says to you, hey, I know Paul says give generously to the church, but actually, if you don't give 10%, if you give 9% of your income, you're cursed. So false teacher Fred gets up and starts saying all kinds of stuff. What, what happened in this meeting is I would show up, there's Dan, there's false teacher Fred, and you're all sitting here, and I come and I shake Dan's hand, and that's it. You'd all be driving home going, did you guys think it was weird that Paul shook Dan's hand, but he didn't shake Fred's hand? I wonder why I did that. It's because I came and said, okay, you represent the gospel, you not so much. See, our modern day universal idea um, in our culture says, well, you should just accept everybody. But that's not what Paul did. He said, I have to establish a basis here. And I actually have to establish a boundary that Christ has done it all. And if we don't get that right, because Jesus is the cornerstone, we're not going to get anything else right. Because the Bible is going to be a tit-for-tat divine self-help manual. That's the trajectory it will go in. As opposed to, Christ has done it all, and because I marvel at his grace, my heart wants nothing more than to imitate to the glory of God, the one who saved me. But from freedom. From sheer freedom. I don't need to earn anything. And so that's why Paul goes and he, and he does this. And we would have this wrong idea about it, like, like uh, you know, Paul, you're being so mean. Oh, Paul, you went to Jerusalem and you were bashing the Christians. No, he wasn't. He would have said, nope. He would have said, no way, brother. No, he wouldn't have said that. He would have said it in Greek. He would have said, Oopsie, at Elphos. There you go. Is that better? But that's what he would have, that's what he, he would have said. He would have said, no, don't tell me to just shake everybody's hand. I'm not shaking everybody's hand. 
Because if you start erasing Jesus and you start erasing the cross, you're going to confuse the church. You're going to burden people. So Paul said, I'm not having that. And so this is a beautiful gift to you and I today because now the freedom that we enjoy as believers in this city, it looks beautiful. It's the basis for our unity. And so so, um, if Paul permitted the false teaching, he wouldn't have had unity. He would have been in idolatry. Because... You see, we read earlier in verse 10, he said, hey, I'm not trying to please man. Remember we read that? So if he goes, okay, that's kind of off, but for the sake of relationship, we're going to let it go. See, it's actually the reverse. Paul goes, actually, I can't sacrifice the gospel for the sake of, on the altar of relationship, because then it's going to burden the church. So Paul preserves unity, not universalism. He preserves true church unity, not idolatry, right? That's what, that's what he did. And so any teaching that removes Christ as the author and finisher of our faith and it insists that we're contributors and sustainers of our faith is false. And that's what Paul went to go and, and to fight. He said, you know, he said no way, that's, that's dead wrong. Because otherwise what you're saying is you'll start to read the scriptures this way. You'll start to read it like Christ at the cross made my salvation possible. The life that I'm living from here on out makes my salvation actual. And that's dead wrong. It's dead wrong. Because then who's, the, who's saving you? You. And so Paul says, no way. Front to back, Christ has done it all. And it was a big deal. It was the, it was the, the boundary. So let's move on to see that, yes, the gospel is the basis for our unity, and it's the boundary for the unity of the church. But then how does the gospel create diverse community? And why was that important and why is it relevant for us today? Well, because Paul was teaching that Christ had done it all at the cross and then he fulfilled God's law, that meant that the grace of God was for every culture. See, up until that point, if you came to saving faith in in Jehovah God and you believed that one day the Messiah was going to come to rid you of your sin, then if you were from any other culture, any other nation, you could believe in God, but you culturally became Jewish. Right? You would follow the Torah. You would get circumcised. You would bring on their dietary practices, their cleansing practices. That's what it meant. But because Christ has fulfilled the law, everybody from every culture can place their faith in Christ and enjoy the unique distinct, distinctives of their culture without the church having to become homogeneous and all be kind of one culture. Do you see that? So Paul was coming and saying, hey guys, he goes to Jerusalem and goes, hold on a second. Faith in Christ alone is enough. Christ has fulfilled the law. Right? It, it, was, it provided for there to be a diverse global community. That's why here at Redeemer, we can all, there can be a diversity in the church as we, we don't all have to um, be the same culture. I'm going to get to why this is relevant in a minute because you might say, well, why are you saying this? Nobody's trying to bring the Mosaic law back. You're right, but I'll tell you, there's a whole lot of other laws we like to bring back. So this is why it's, it's so critical. See, Christ was greater than the temple. He was greater than the priest. He was greater than the sacrifice. If you were a sinner and you touched the priest, you made the priest unclean. But if you're a sinner and you come to Jesus, Jesus makes you clean. If you were a sinner and you touched the temple, you made the temple unclean. But if you're a sinner and you walk into the church, Jesus makes you clean. You had to make sacrifices all throughout the Old Testament, but the Bible said that the blood of the bulls and the goats, it was never sufficient, ever. It was not. It did not satisfy God. They were all being passed over until Jesus. That's why they called it the Passover. 
Because God wasn't okay with that. There needed to be a perfect sacrifice. So Christ is the greater temple, the greater priest is the greater sacrifice. He fulfilled it all. Christ fulfilled the offices of the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. Christ is the final prophet. Every prior word was about him. He is the fulfillment of every word. And every future uh, prophetic word is pointing the church to Christ and to his work and to his grace. Christ is, has fulfilled that he is the prophet. He is the priest, right? The priest had to purify themselves and do that. Jesus didn't have to do that. He was sinless. And he, as the priest, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. Prophet, priest, and king. David was the last king on the Davidic throne. There was never another king, and there has not been another king, because Christ is, the final, Christ is, Christ is our king. His kingdom is eternal, right? He fulfilled it all. So that's what Paul's saying. He goes, guys, he's, he's fulfilled it all. And what they were accusing Paul of is they're saying, you've got this grace message that's so... It's just so, it's this easy believism. You're saying just place all your faith in Christ and his grace and then you're saved. But what about keeping the law? That's what they were, that's what they were trying to bring back. But by bringing, but by bringing the law back, what they were saying is, yes, you can be a Christian, but you also have to be culturally like us. That was the battle in Jerusalem. So why does this matter today? Why am I even bothered teaching this? None of you want Mosaic law. No, you don't. But if Jesus goes from the focus to the peripheral, historically speaking, the church creates its own culture laws. We've always done this. This is what history teaches us. We don't want to do it. The church says, well, we have our own culture laws. So we don't want God's, we don't want God's moral law that says, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, because that's impossibly high. That means I need Jesus. That means I need grace. So we need laws that are small and petty and doable. So what, historically speaking, the church does when, when Christ's grace gets sidelined is the, is the church will do this. The church will say, well, God accepts you if your faith is in Christ and you drink this, not that. God accepts you if your faith is in Christ, but you eat this, not that. But you watch this, not that. But you're entertained like this, not that. But you read this, not that. But you listen to this, not that. But you dress like this and not like that. God will accept you. You can come to KW Redeemer. Sure, place your faith in Christ. But behave like this, not that. And make sure that you educate your kids and send them to a school like this, not that. Spend your money like this, not that. Buy a car like this, not that. On. And I can do this all day. All day. See, we don't want the Mosaic Law, but we, bring, we create our own cultural Jesus plus be like our culture. And then you're okay with God. The reason why it was code red back then was because if, if, the, if, so the word Gentile, for those of you that are newer to the Bible, anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. And so the, so the Jews would have looked, like, looked at the Gentiles and said, hey, they're not eating kosher. Maybe they're not saved. Right? It would have been an external thing. Maybe, maybe their faith isn't in Christ because they're not eating kosher. And then the Gentile would have looked at the Jew and said, and the Jew whose faith truly was in Christ, and, and culturally they just decided to continue to eat kosher or they dressed a certain way or whatever, and the Gentile would have looked at the Jew and said, hey, they're eating kosher. Don't they know Christ has fulfilled the law? Maybe they're not saved. Do you see what it would have done? It created a culture of comparison on the basis of externals. And so if we forget that Christ's grace is enough, then what we will do in this church is we will create a culture of comparison based on externals. And then people will come in and will say, well, this is kind of the way that, you know, um, this is how we believe real Christians should 
should act. In the same way they were saying, a real Christian would place their faith in Christ and eat kosher. We would, we would create our own version of that and say, well, a real Christian and would, would place their faith in Christ and do what I, my family is up to. And then it would become this external comparison thing. That was, the, that was the problem there that Paul was trying to snuff out. And that's what we want to snuff out here. Because it could, we could create that culture here. Place your faith in Christ and make sure you come to theology at the symposium every time I have one. Because real Christians do, that's what real Christians do, guys. I'm trying to reach Kitchener-Waterloo. I'm, I'm having coffee with people. I'm going and having drinks with people. And I'm sharing the gospel. And that's what you should be doing too. Right? See where it goes? Now, if you come to Theology Symposium and we have a great dialogue, that's beautiful. But if that doesn't work for your schedule, I don't care. Okay? Every single time there's something in the church bulletin, if that works for your family, we want to do those things to serve you so you can connect and build relationship and reach the city. That's good. And, it, and it's wonderful. And, and uh, it's good. But, you know, that it's not salvation by Christ and what KW Redeemer is up to. Right? And so that's where it, that's how we tend to externally judge one another um, because that's what, the, that's what the challenge of the church has always been. So we've got to place all our faith in Christ alone, absolutely. And that's why uh, they throw Titus in there in verse 3. What's, what's up with Titus? Because Titus was a Greek. Titus wasn't circumcised. So he was, the, he was the case test. Paul brings Titus and he's like, are they going to make this guy get circumcised? Because if they do, they kibosh the message of the gospel. But they didn't, right? They said, faith in Christ alone is enough. You don't need to become culturally Jewish any more than today. Faith in Christ alone is enough. You don't have to culturally become a KW Redeemerite, you know, where we create like little ghettos across the city where it's like, welcome to our church. You know, we, we talk the same. We dress the same. We act the same. We, we, we behave the same. We enjoy the same things. We read the same things. We watch the same things. We all listen to the same music because this is what Christians do, right? No, absolutely not. That's what Paul was, that's what Paul was going after. Because imagine, the, think of the beautiful diversity in the city and for us to share the gospel and to major on the majors of Christ and imagine the beautiful diversity that that will create in, in, in the church, not just our church, but the church, right? Um, whereby we're, we're living to the glory of God. And some of you are getting so nervous right now as I'm preaching this message, you're thinking, but Paul, we can't just do whatever we want. Of course not. That's crazy. Why would we do that? Our union with Christ produces the desire to live to God's glory. Being united with Christ and being full of the Holy Spirit doesn't produce a desire to live indifferent, right, to Christian ethic. It propels it, right? I'm talking about externals, you know, I'm provoking you on purpose so that we don't start getting married to externals because that's always been uh, the challenge historically of the church and that's what Paul was going after. He's saying, listen, Titus is a picture of all of us made spiritually clean and made holy by Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. That's, the, that's why Titus is brought up in there. That's why it's such a big deal. Right? This vivid picture. You and I are holy because of Christ alone. And so behavior is external, whereas our state of being is internal. And what Paul is fighting for in Jerusalem is state of being united to Christ. Right? United to Christ by grace alone gives us a new state of being. And so what Paul is fighting for in Jerusalem that you and I get to enjoy today and go home and have lunch and hang out with our families and our friends this afternoon and rest in the gospel and say, wow, isn't it amazing that Jesus is, has done it all, that our union with Christ wasn't formed by our obedience, our union with Christ isn't being kept intact by our obedience, and our union with, our union with Christ, what it ends up doing is it ends up propelling 
loving and godly obedience. That's what it does. But it's Christ's perfect obedience that you and I marvel at, that we rest in. That's why we gather on Sundays to celebrate the goodness of his, his great gospel for us. And so, <clears throat> Paul comes to Jerusalem to fight them on these things. But interestingly, Paul still calls the church to obedience, just like the religious leaders were calling the church to obedience, but from two different, completely different positions. You see, the religious leaders were calling for all this external obedience so that they would be accepted by God. But Paul was calling for obedience from freedom because you're already accepted by God, because of his grace. See, the... The religious uh, crowd, the false teachers, framed obedience in earning. It was all about earning. You're earning acceptance. You're earning blessing. You're earning brownie points. You're earning gold stars in heaven. You're earning health. You're earning wealth. You're just, everything that you're doing, you're obeying so that everything's all right. And the moment you stop obeying, your kids get sick. Your furnace breaks. Stuff happens. That's how they framed it. But what Paul, the way Paul framed obedience is, no, 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 no. We obey God's, we obey uh, God because we're accepted, because we have his blessing, because Christ has done enough, because we can't add anything to Christ's perfect work. It was all about imitation for Paul. In the same way that your kids put on your clothes and clump around in your shoes. Some of you guys have little kids and toddlers and they'll go to the front door and they'll put your big shoes on and they'll clump around. The church... Our obedience is just about clumping around like our Father because we want to emulate Him. We want to be like Him. We want to be loving. We want to be like Jesus. Or our obedience is driven from a desire for imitation because that's how we love our city better. If we're, the, the more you and I are like Jesus, the more that benefits our neighbor, right? So it's about loving. It's not about earning at all. And so Paul separates those things in a big way. And so the gospel brought this cultural freedom and it created this diverse um, community, so that we didn't end up with these Christian ghettos where it's like, hey, welcome to Redeemer. We all dress the same, eat the same, talk the same, do the same stuff. It's crazy. No. The gospel creates this great diversity. And so in verse 7, he gives this thing where he says, you know, Peter shared the gospel uh, to those who were circumcised, and I shared to the uncircumcised. In other words, the whole world, the Jews, and then everybody else who wasn't Jews, which speaks to diversity of calling. And so there's this great, beautiful diversity of calling in this room. But Paul says, the sp same spirit working in Peter was working in me. But Peter had to contextualize the gospel for that crowd, and I contextualized it for this crowd. And so now this freedom in the gospel that you and I enjoy allows you and I to go into the city from sheer freedom and uh, contextualize the gospel for the world we're in. So some of you guys are, you're at home with young children, and your world looks like raising children. And so you contextualize the gospel in your world for what that looks like, right? Teaching your kids about the God's grace and the relationships that you have and the community that you connect with. Some of you are students and you're on campus, right? And so for you, giving a defense of the gospel and sharing why your hope is in Christ and why your faith is in God, it looks like having conversations in an academic way, in a, in a reasonable way, in a critical way to defend why it is that you believe what you believe. For those of you in business, it looks a different way. For those of you in, uh, uh, who are coaching sports and in the arts, those of you who are involved in media, it looks this diverse way. So what Paul defended in that meeting in Jerusalem enables you now to go with this great freedom with your gifts and your abilities in your context to share the glory of Christ's grace.
without us all having to be homogenous and marching around and up to the same stuff. So this was the beautiful uh, freedom that came from this meeting. Final thing as I close this morning. It comes from the last sentence that I read on remembering the poor. Which is interesting because it seems like here you are having this massive conversation about everything I've just been talking about today and the last two weeks about what the gospel is and isn't and what it propels. And all of a sudden it seems like there's this sentence just tacked on. Oh, and by the way, remember the poor. And Paul goes, oh yeah, that's what we wanted to do anyways. Is it just tacked on? It's not. Right? The Bible doesn't have throwaway phrases. You see, the gospel propels generosity and from Genesis to Revelation... Caring for the poor is a theme. Compassion on those who need grace is a theme. So is it, it's fitting that in the context of Paul saying, this is what the gospel is, it is grace alone, that all of a sudden there's a conversation, oh, by the way, guys, remember the poor. And Paul goes, you got it. That's exactly what we want to do. Why? It's because the gospel transforms how we see the poor, the outcast, the downtrodden, the refugee. Jesus essentially moved in with those people. Right? One of the marks of gospel unity is the caring for the poor. And for us, caring for the needy among us and caring for the needy in this city. Right? Living a life of love is not the gospel, but living a life of love is a result of the gospel. So Paul points this out here. And what's interesting about it is that the gospel reminds us that this life is not all that there is. When you think about the symbol of our faith, it's a cross. The cross is a picture of sacrifice. The cross is not a picture of self-fulfillment. Right? And so when, they, when they're talking about the essence of the gospel and they say, remember the poor, it's because our lives are now defined by one who said, I still love you. I still forgive you. I'm constantly coming toward you with something you never earned, you didn't deserve, and you're never going to be able to pay back. And that's the heart of what gospel unity produces in all of us. That we look at, that as this church grows and as your relationships and your hearts are knit together in the years to come, as we hear about needs here, there's something in us, right, that goes, how can I have that cross-shaped love that says, your benefit, my expense. And this is the picture of this gospel We were the poor. We were the ones who couldn't repay. And Christ came to us, and we extend that great and that beautiful grace. And so the gospel is the basis for our unity. It creates this beautiful diversity, and it propels generosity, because Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let's close in prayer.